Hello, listener, and welcome to episode four of The Burning Issue. So far, we have spoken to industry figures who have explained what the energy recovery sector has done well and not so well. But there are those who say we shouldn't have gone down the energy recovery route in the first place. And while they agree landfill is bad, they also say incineration is actually worse. So in this episode, I'm talking to United Kingdom Without Incineration, or UK Win, as it is better known. The face of UK Win is its national coordinator, Shlomo Dowan, and on the technical side is associate coordinator, Josh Dowan. Hello, Shlomo and Josh. Thank you for talking to me today. Hello, Luke. Wonderful to be here. We do talk before we start to record these podcasts. And Josh, you raised an issue with me referring to energy from waste when you think it should be incineration. I use EFW to refer to modern plants that capture heat and power rather than just burning waste to dispose of it. But why do you think that's wrong? The reason I think it's wrong is because there are many different technologies that can convert waste into energy. So you have anaerobic digestion and you have landfill gas capture and so on. And so it isn't a very helpful term in actually identifying the type of technology it is, which makes it come across as a euphemism for a technology that people don't want to call by its more common name. But also, it makes it sound like the actual main purpose of the facility is to create energy out of waste when that is inaccurate. The main purpose of these facilities is to process the waste, not to create the energy. And you can see this because there are times when incinerators don't operate their turbines and aren't generating electricity, and yet they still run the plants because their main purpose is to protest waste and get the gate fee and, and keep the show on the road. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But also, when energy from waste plants are decided through planning, it goes to the department that deals with the energy side of it rather than the waste side of it. So is there a disconnect there? As far as I know, that generally speaking isn't a specific system in place to be able to treat waste applications in relation to NSIPs. And so obviously they go with the closest MAC, which is energy. But when it comes to planning policy at a more local level, it is the waste local plan which is relevant and it's decided by the Waste Disposal Authority. So it's kind of more an artifact of the kind of complexities of the national planning system that it's treated under energy because they just don't have a waste category. And obviously, as this podcast is about the people as well as the industry, I'd like to talk a bit more about you two, if we could. Uh, Then we'll hear your views on the energy recovery sector currently and where you think it's going. So, Shlomo, if I could start with you, what's an average workday like for you? I can certainly tell you how an average day begins. Everything goes crazy after that. But I keep loads of tabs open on my browser. And my morning routine is to sort of systematically go through the various tabs until I get to the inbox. And when it comes to UK Win, it is also fair to say that it's Josh who is the one who handles the more technical stuff, so day by day, whereas I tend to be more front-facing. Some of the work we do, we do together and double up. That gives me a better understanding of how it all works. And Josh, can I ask you, has it changed much since COVID? It's changed a lot since COVID in some ways. I mean, during COVID, we were working all the way through it because we work from home. But one of the big differences is that now a lot of people are very good at Zoom, they're very good at Teams and all these online meetings, which means well before, if we wanted to do something, we'd have to go to London, we'd have to go here or there. Now we can reach our members, we can reach MPs, we can reach people who are interested in talking to us remotely from our home, and that means we can get a lot more done. But 
we acknowledge that not everyone uses the computer and is as relaxed using it. So we still do things using telephones, chatting to people on the phone. There is that benefit to the personal touch to be able to actually just chat with people in person. But now we kind of see that as, is that the best use of our time for this particular thing or that particular thing? Do we have time for this? Uh, it's a balancing act, isn't it? I agree with you. It's fantastic to be able to watch a planning meeting online, but it's also it's good to go to events and see people in person. Let's talk about UK Wind's position on waste management. Josh, I've come into the energy recovery in this series from a background that landfill is the worst option and recycling or reuse are the best, with EFW filling the gap in between. Am I wrong? In short, my take on it is that landfill is bad, but incineration is worse. And the reason for this is that people who think incineration is the answer usually are asking the wrong question. Because it's not a binary choice between an inevitable amount of residual waste that will either have to go to incineration or landfill. What you have is an awful lot of recyclable material that shouldn't be going to incineration or landfill, but is going to there. And you have to ask the question, what can we do about this material as it arises, but also what can we do to prevent that material going into the residual scheme in the future? And the worst thing you can do in that regard is to say, let's build more incinerators, because then what you've done is you've locked it in to the disposal routes. And so what you've done is you've gone from having something that is bad for 10, 15, 20, 30 years, and so you've actually significantly exacerbated the problem. But it's also the case that landfill, while bad, isn't always even the worst just for an individual piece of material, because you can landfill it in a way that means that you could, in the future, remove it from the landfill if it becomes economic to recycle. Because a lot of this material might be recyclable, but might not be economic to recycle. I see your point, but I do kind of feel when you're putting stuff in landfill, you're abandoning that problem for the next generation like you say you could come back to it but if it is dealt with and turned into like you say the small amount of energy at least it is dealt with is that not the better option i think the easy option is incineration because then you don't have to think of what better things to do with that material stream in the future but the right option is to think what is the future that i want to see and how do i get there Slomo, I'd like to discuss with you the UK's waste treatment capacity gap, or lack of one. Sue has told me earlier in this series the sector develops lots of EFW projects but won't take them forward, which gives the impression of looming overcapacity. But I think you'd disagree with that, wouldn't you? Well, it does give the impression of looming overcapacity. The disagreement is that UK Wind sees that we already have overcapacity because we already have more incineration capacity, operational and under construction, than genuinely residual waste to burn. Obviously, we didn't have exactly the facilities that Suez meant when they said some will be closing down and some won't go ahead and all the rest of it, whereas UK Wind's uh, research excluded more than a million tons of capacity because in our understanding those facilities were not likely to go ahead. We know that some consented incinerators don't go ahead and we took that into account as part of our analysis. But when we compared the level of potential feedstock, and we were very generous in what we considered to be potential incinerator feedstock, with the capacity of incinerators that are already operational or that um, are currently under construction, so that they're likely to go ahead, there was already five and a half million tons of overcapacity by 2042. And that's five and a half million tons just for England, we could say it that way. And when incinerators that have already been granted both planning permission 
and an environmental permit, perhaps haven't started construction yet, that rises to more than eight and a half million tons of overcapacity, and it rises yet further to 14 million tons of overcapacity if we're talking just about those that have already been granted planning permission. So if a moratorium, if there was a government, and if that government did introduce a moratorium today, then we would still be facing something in the region of 14 million tons of overcapacity if those that have already been granted planning permission are built out. Hence the call for a moratorium. It's interesting you mentioned the moratoriums. Obviously, that's the road Scotland and Wales have come down. DEFRA has said there's not one in England at the moment. How do you see that going forward now? Well, I mean, it could be another example of a U-turn. There are certainly many MPs. I mean, it would enjoy cross-party support. It's a low-cost measure that could help them win back or at least not lose even more votes and credibility with the electorate. So we can't rule it out. And I think that the reason for that is because the market, the industry, shall we say, can't be trusted to regulate themselves or we wouldn't be in the situation that we find ourselves in already. And I don't see that there's a counter argument that demonstrates that incineration overcapacity isn't happening or won't be happening. I mean, I know you've written recently about the nationally significant infrastructure proposal, the so-called North Lincolnshire Green Energy Park. The 650,000 ton one, yeah. (laughs) That's right. Other waste companies like Infinium are pointing out to the examining authority, the two planning inspectors that have responsibility, that there's already overcapacity, that there isn't the need for this new capacity anywhere in the East Midlands. So one way that it could go forward, Luke, is that it could be not a national moratorium that covers the whole of England, but effectively a moratorium that covers the different regions. Obviously, the decision for the Boston incinerator could have given an insight into both the planning inspector and indeed the Secretary of State's view. We have already seen incineration capacity refused on the grounds of overcapacity. A gentleman named Quasi Quarteng, you might have heard of him. He's gone on to be a great success since. That's right, yes, exactly. (laughs) When he was uh, business secretary, he refused permission for Wheelabrator Kemsley North capacity, again, on the grounds that it hadn't been demonstrated that it wouldn't be competing with recycling, etc. I think the case for a moratorium just gets stronger with each planning decision. It's interesting you talk about the government, but do you think maybe if a Labour government came in, they would be more likely to be against it, or they'd certainly need more time to look at it, I'd imagine? UK Wind took part in the Boston inquiry. The Boston incinerator will be refused permission. The issue is what cluster of reasons. First and foremost, there is the need to protect the wash. Many statutory consultees who usually remain silent or muted in the case of the Boston incinerator proposal have raised the alarm. So setting aside the overcapacity arguments, and I mean, we're talking about 1.2 million tons per annum of capacity, but we're also talking about a facility that would require pile driving into an area that is sensitive, that is used by creatures that have protections, etc. If any minister were to be bold enough to approve the Boston incinerator proposal, they would be doing so over the heads of a lot of statutory consultees. I agree with you. Even if it gets planning permission, it's a massive one to build and 
who's going to want to supply the waste to it? It's a difficult location, even with the boat's plan. There's a lot going on there. It's within the same East Midlands region, and Finium has said is already full up. And as far as I understand, the statement that they made doesn't take into account the 1.2 million tonnes of capacity proposed for Boston. So uh, it, it gets a bit joined up. Josh, I should say, one of the arguments, touched on this a bit earlier, but one of the arguments put forward against energy recovery is that increased recycling will make it redundant. But most recent figures issued earlier this year showed the rates slipped in England to 44% from 45.4%. So if recycling is going the wrong way, do we need more energy recovery? Last year, more than 48% of England's local authority collected waste was sent to incineration. So it is basic maths that if we want to recycle more, we need to be incinerating less. If we want to know how that will happen, we actually have a very good indication because the government set out their main policies on that in their resources and waste strategy. And there may be some delays in the implementation of that strategy, but the government has remained committed to implementing those measures. The government has a lot of measures already in place that should significantly reduce the amount of residual waste that is arriving. If we look at the recent past, that is a period not only where there hasn't been as much investment as there ought to have been, but one of the reasons that there hasn't been as much investment as there ought to have been is because local councils have been waiting on the details of the government plans. So they're not going to just implement separate collection of food waste today if they think that tomorrow the government says, oh, if you introduce separate collection of food waste, we're going to pay you all the costs that it takes to do the handover. And they're not going to change all their recycling collections today if they're not sure whether or not textiles are going to be a requirement as part of it and so on. At the moment, there's a period of uncertainty as to the precise details, and there hasn't yet been the actual promise of the kind of funding being realised. When you say uncertainty, I think that's probably one of the more polite ways of describing the current government situation. There's a mixed picture across the country with local authorities. You mentioned Scotland there. The Scottish Border Council, it sends the vast majority of its waste to energy recovery, but it has a recycling rate of 52.8%, which is well above Scotland's national average of 42.7%. So does it depend on the region? If you look at it on a region basis... The study after study has shown that regions with high recycling rates have low incineration rates and, and that the ones with the highest rates of incineration have the lowest rates of recycling. So there's clearly something there in terms of that correlation. And one of the underlying reasons for that is it costs hundreds of millions of pounds to build an incinerator and then you have to keep it fed in order to keep paying for the gate fees and the other costs that will pay for the building. You're not going to build an incinerator and then leave it running idle because then effectively you've lost a lot of money. So in regions with high levels of incineration, you have not only lots of incentive from those companies to get as much weight as possible, but in many cases, in order to get those incinerators built, you have contracts with local authorities that include portal pay clauses, management guarantees, banding mechanisms, all of which effectively place the feedstock risk onto the local authority. And then the local authority goes around and says, oh, sorry, I can't invest in this, that or the other because I'm already tied into sending this feedstock to incineration. But then if you look forwards, what could their rate have been if they hadn't been tied to incineration? How much higher can they go without reducing their incineration? And Scottish Boards is a good example of that because they actually had a contract to go with gasification 
Union that they cancelled in 2015. And so they actually kind of abandoned some of their commitments to incineration a number of years ago, and now they may be doing it in a slightly different way in terms of they might have it in a more short-term contract. I understand. You mentioned cost there. So, Shlomo, if I could ask you, there's a lot of talk of developing technology such as carbon capture coming into the sector, but it's at a huge cost. Obviously, stopping pollution is good at existing plants, but UK Wind has said there's uncertainties over the technology. Should the government and industry not be investing in carbon capture? Well, that's absolutely right, Luke. UK Wing would like to see an immediate halt to the sort of investment in incineration of any kind to make it look prettier, to add heating systems or carbon capture, etc., until we have a credible incineration exit strategy in place. There's absolutely no point taking investment money, whether that's public money or whether that's money that comes with a uh, an opportunity cost that means it's not being invested elsewhere, and apply that investment to a facility that is going to be shut down in five years' time, etc. While one or two or maybe three incinerators might secure public funding to act as a demonstrator project, it's absolutely vital that we learn the lessons of the past. We referred earlier to gasification. I remember the gasification demonstrator project, and they failed. But because the operators, or if you like the experimenters, were not open about the reasons for their failure, other projects went ahead and failed potentially for the exact same reason. And so we have to ensure that any public funding for carbon capture comes with strict conditions, including a duty of candor, to share the details of any shortcomings that have been encountered. I know it's embarrassing for the industry to talk something up and then for it to fall short of their expectations. That's science. Oh, I think you make a really interesting point there about the gasification, because obviously the, the CFDs backed people to build these gasification plants, so lots of them were planned. Nearly all of them, I think apart from Energy Works Hull, have switched to a grape-based system or were dropped. So whereas obviously gasification technology works elsewhere, carbon capture technology works elsewhere, I could see how you could argue quite convincingly that there could be a problem funding it massively and bringing it into the UK. I think that makes a lot of sense. Even if carbon capture worked and even if somehow the money was to be found to fund it, it doesn't prevent incineration from being a leakage from the circular economy. At the moment, the carbon capture technologies of which we are aware require a lot of energy to operate, so it will divert energy into the parasitic load. Many incinerators, of course, are nowhere near a proposed CO2 pipeline. So I'd... I don't think it would be widespread if we're talking about one project in the UK or two projects in the UK. It's groundbreaking. People can get excited about it or bored by it. But within the context of the whole uh, incineration industry, it won't affect most incinerators at all. So we talked there about financials and the limited money that's available for government agencies. And obviously, we've got the regulator, the environment agency and a cost of living crisis with environmentalism arguably being pushed to the side. Do you think the EA is still fit for purpose? Well, the EA's stated purpose is to protect the environment. And the Environment Agency should not be used to provide cover for decisions that degrade the environment. Sadly, when it comes to incineration, most of what the EA does is to provide operators with permits to pollute. So the EA does seem to be letting us down and letting down the protection of the environment. Now, I know that there are many people who joined the Environment Agency for all the right reasons 
it, it must be frustrating, heartbreaking for a lot of the human beings who work at the Environment Agency, but the EA does seem to be going against the most basic fundamental principle of sustainability, that what we do now should not come at the expense of future generations. And I think what we're seeing is that, yes, I strongly agree with you. The Environment Agency is not being given the resources that they would need to succeed. In a sense, they're being set up to fail. They haven't been given the right framework to operate, the right political steerage to properly do their jobs. The culture at the Environment Agency does seem to prioritize operator profits at the expense of the environment. The Environment Agency seems to think that it's the waste companies who are their customers and they try to satisfy their customers without properly recognizing that for all that waste companies pay a fee to have their application processed, it's the taxpayer who pays the Environment Agency's bills. We are the Environment Agency's customers. We, as the Environment Agency's customers, are feeling let down because of the favoritism that is shown to operators. I've been doing the Ends Waste and Bioenergy website for nearly 10 years, and I think in all that time, there's only been one permit turned down for a facility, and that was Rivenhall. And obviously they got that afterwards, but I could see why you might feel let down. Josh, talking about the waste sector in general, do you still think it has an image problem? I think it does have an image problem. I think part of the reason that it does have an image problem is that it is making a lot of claims which people can see from a mile away is greenwash. So a lot of the times when they make claims that are environmental claims, when you look under the surface, they are less than what they seem. And that makes people think that if they're willing to lie about these things so blatantly, that are things that can be so easily demonstrably proven to be misleading or inaccurate, only telling part of the story, then what about all the things where they're making claims that people can't easily verify? Why should people believe that those things are being done in a green and fair way that puts people before profits? And when they people see that there are these hundreds of millions of pounds, multi-million pound contracts they're not allowed to see, people think, well, there must be something to hide there. That doesn't mean there is something to hide, but their lack of transparency makes it look like there is. They really need to say, we recognise that some of these waste contracts are paving to making over recycling. We're willing to renegotiate those at fair rates. We recognise that we've not been very transparent about all what we've been doing. We're going to give that information publicly on our website forevermore because we have nothing to hide. If they start, to some extent, acknowledging why it is that people find them to be hard to believe, rather than simply complaining, oh, it's so unfair that people don't believe what we say, and then, and then every time someone asks, well, you make that claim, can you provide a source? And they say, no, we just make that claim. Then, then they're just going to continue having that problem. In fairness, that's one of the reasons why we're doing this, to, get, to talk to people and to get their opinions out there. Hopefully, the industry can change that. That's one of the things I'll put to more people as I talk to them going along. Either of you can answer this, or both of you, if you want. It's the final question I'm asking everyone on the burning issue. What's the one question you wish I'd asked you, and how would you have answered it? A question that you could have asked is, what would UK Wind say to those considering investing in waste incineration? Obviously, a lot of people who read ENDS 
are not only the people who are doing things, but also the people who enable those things to be done. And when it comes to waste incineration, we've talked a lot about the high expense. Not all of that money comes from the public purse. Some of it comes from investors. Have we got a message to investors? And the answer would have been, don't do it, investors. Don't invest in waste incineration. Read UK Wind's capacity reports, which show how new plants will become stranded assets. The fight for feedstock has well and truly begun. Recognize that all of the juicy contracts with local authorities have been taken up. The market leaders are no longer putting in loads of planning applications. Consider the evidence and then decide to invest in the top tiers of the waste hierarchy instead, thus helping create many more jobs and a better environment. That's my advice to investors listening out out there. I like those points. I like the phrases fight for feedstock and stranded assets. I think that's not what investors want to hear, is it? So I can pass that on. Both of you, I'd like to thank you very much for your time. Excellent, Luke. Thank you very much. Great stuff. The Burning Issues guests this time were Shlomo and Josh Dowan. It was written and presented by Luke Walsh and is produced by Zarina Dean. Thank you very much for listening. And if you want to learn more about energy recovery, go to the site endswasteandbioenergy.com where you can sign up for our free newsletters and maybe even take out a subscription if you want.